Welcome to The Truth In This Art. I am your host, Rob Lee. Thanks for listening and do share and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Listen and leave a comment. Let me know what you think about the podcast. Today, I am in conversation with a gifted composer, conductor, pianist, and producer who also works in film, uh, recording, radio, television. Please welcome Darren Atwater. Welcome to the podcast. Good to be with you today, Rob. Thank you. Thank you. And, and, and how's it going today? I know we were talking a little bit before we got started, but hope everything is going well. Things are good. I'm healthy, you know, productive, um, you know, kind of in the throes of juggling a couple of projects, which is kind of normal. But with the pandemic, everything is kind of coalescing all at once. So it's a good thing, but just trying to manage it at all. I, I like that uh, that terminology, by the way, coalescing, because that yeah. is, uh, as I was telling you about the day job, that's a function that I use in <laughs> SQL. So, yes, uh, <laughs> coalesce. Let's bring these things together. That's right. That's right. Uh, so I, I want to start this off in a very because uh, I gave a high level copy and paste um, introduction of who you are and what your background is. But I want to allow and invite you to really shed a light on that. And for those who are undipped, can you tell us who you are, your background and when did you get started in music? Um, Darren Atwater, I'm the founding director of Soulful Symphony, among other things. <laughs> I got started. Um, I mean, I can't even really say I got started because it's such a thread of music and culture in my family. Sure. But um, to pinpoint a moment, um, my grandmother, who lived in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, my folks are from the South, Durham, Chapel Hill area, um, sent us the family piano. I was four years old, so she sent up an upright Wurlitzer piano. And uh, at the time, my sister was taking lessons and I would get up on the piano and just do my thing. And as stories become legend, you know, the older you get, a story starts up as a, like an anecdote and the older you get, it becomes legendary. So the more I get in the public sphere, the more this story becomes legendary. But in my own mythology, legend has it that we were at a family gathering. I vaguely remember this. And um, I got up on the piano and was fully playing a song um, around the family. So I remember the song I was playing and that kind of like launched me into, um, you know, just pinpointing the moment where I felt like it all started. And from there, I, you know, just music was a soundtrack in our home. I grew up playing in church. Um, my granddad would let me play every Sunday for offering. So at four or five, I was playing in church. So that was kind of wow. like a great place to, um, you know, grow, learn, learn, observe. It's the whole idea of ritual. It's a lot that goes on the church that gets taken for granted in terms of a training ground for a musician. Yeah. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Thank you for, thank you for walking us through that. Um, sure. It's, it's always interesting to hear about just it being a family thing. It being like, eh, let's see what you do with this. And, exactly. Because um, <laughs> that was kind of the thing for me. And I chose different. It was like, hey, Junior, because, you know, everyone's, you're, you're Junior. You're never right, whatever your name right, is, right? Right. Yeah. And um, it's like, here's some color pencils. Figure it out. It's like, oh, I guess <laughs> trial by fire, I guess. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So and it's the best way to learn. I say that in, in the church. I mean, everybody's like, that's okay, baby. You mess up. They say, okay, <laughs> keep going, baby. That's all right. You're going to do it. You're all right. So you, you get kind of the best of both worlds. You get the critique and then you get the, the warming you up and brushing you off. And, you know, that's just an encouraging thing. So it's like you're saying, it's a beautiful space to, to grow, learn, and discover. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So you touched on a little bit, um, like Soulful Symphony in, in the uh, introduction. So could you could you describe us and tell you a little bit more about um, when you first talked about like 
the the idea and because that's always an interesting thing for me when someone has Mm -hmm. this is going to be unique this is my idea how is it being presented so in terms of that so describe soulful symphony can you walk us through that kind of like first time you 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 talked about it who was it who were you talking to about it and Mm -hmm. um how's it grown since um because i believe it's been around for as a, as a, as a yeah, concept 22, in 22 yeah. years. As a concept, yeah, as a concept, maybe 25. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, as a physical manifestation, we did our debut in 2000, February 6, 2000, but conceived probably just dating on it three years before that. But I did my debut um, as a composer in 1995 with the National Symphony Orchestra. I wrote a piece called, uh, well, actually it was a piano concerto. And it was very classical, um, much in the in the lane of romantic classical composers like Tchaikovsky and Rachmaninoff. Um, I was a big, huge Russian fan as a pianist. So I wrote this piano concerto, which is it features piano, solo piano. Then you color the orchestra around this solo piano. And for the theme of that concerto, um, I chose a Negro spiritual. I want Jesus to walk with me. So that's kind of a thread to my past. And then I'm getting introduced to the symphony orchestra. And I'm a composer, so I'm merging these two worlds. And um, I hadn't really had any formal training at that point. I I was at Morgan State University, and the band director, Melvin Miles, who's actually retiring this year, 50 years at being at the marching band director. He said, man, you're really a composer, the way that you play. And I had heard it, but Morgan didn't have a composition department at that point. So I kind of did self-studies. I would go to all the symphonies I could attend, bought scores, bought CDs at the time. And just immerse myself in the sonic world of this, the orchestration and, and, and symphony. So after about two years of that, I was writing something and I ran into someone at the Kennedy Center. I was attending the concert and he knew me from Morgan. He said, Darren, what's going on? I said, I'm composing. And he said, well, we have this young composers series and um, I'd love to see your music. Well, he saw it, loved it, and they programmed it for the symphony. And two things happened that night. One was... I looked around and I was like, wow, there's, you know, no people of color in the orchestra, you know, just very marginalized at the time. And secondarily, but which became primary for me was like the repertoire in an American orchestra in an American space in my hometown in Washington, D.C. This repertoire was still heavily Euro- Eurocentric mm-hmm. and 99 percent of all classical music is still very Eurocentric. So the idea of framing American music around our roots of framing the symphony orchestra around American roots music and folk music and African-American music was something of a misnomer. So that kind of just opened my eyes. It was like going from black and white to technicolor. And then I said, you know what, I want to continue to explore this framework, but begin to explore more of our, of our music. So I said, well, I want to write a piece and I want to base it on this, on the spiritual. And then I said, I want to bring African-Americans together because at its inception, the spiritual African-Americans could not play instruments. You know, the drum was banned, instruments were banned. Well, you could play the fiddle at balls and things like that, but the drum was banned. So I said it would be great to bring together African-Americans to play this suite that I composed called Song in a Strange Land. So we did that in 2000. It took about three years to kind of galvanize, raise money, get the idea launched. Um, my good friend and mentor, Wynton Marsalis, came down and played on it. And uh, February 6, 2000, we launched Stouffel Symphony with that piece of music, Song in a Strange Land. And it was such a, a groundswell, not, o- not only that night, but we knew it was something bigger than just a one-time performance. And here we are 22 years later. Wow. It's, it's, it's more than music. It's, you know, as I, I have in here, it's, it's, it's a movement. It's a huge part of a cultural shift. So, yeah, sure. 
and and I'll be remiss if I don't mention I'm a Morgan alum as well. So big shout oh, out. Oh, okay, them. <laughs> right. Good deal. That's right. Um. So in it, I, I want I want to make sure I keep all of my questions in order because as I'm editing as we're I talking, I'm like, I all right, it. man, yeah, we I got. Understand. I understand, brother. <laughs> um. So you know the Morgan connection is there. So what does it mean for you? And, and we're going to go back into where we were mm-hmm. at a moment ago. What does sure. it mean to you to be an artist with ties to to Baltimore, what have you? Because you're you're multifaceted. You're you're a legend as I'm as I'm reading, you know. Mm-hmm. And what does it mean to to have those ties to Baltimore and to this area at large? You know, it's interesting because I was talking to a friend of mine, and a lot of musicians take flight from Baltimore and they go to L.A. or they go to New York. I would, um, protege, she's in Nashville. Next week we'll be together. And then, you know, with that, we've amputated ourselves from the rich history of Baltimore. Um, you know, everything from, you know, Cab Calloway to Billy Holiday to Chick Webb, really Chick Webb, man, during the like the big band era, the height of the big band era. This is like Duke Ellington is just cutting his teeth at the Cotton Club. And then it's Fletcher Henderson. But right in that stew is Chick Webb, who was right out of Baltimore. Yeah. And so this jazz, this long lineage of jazz, you know, history and rich culture that came out of Pennsylvania Avenue and then, you know, gospel and popular music um, is kind of been amputated from our history. So, I've, you know, I've always tried to make sure that we were tying ourselves and pulling tradition to modernity, like whatever we're doing in terms of innovation and extending forward. We're always making sure that we're tied to this tradition. So I'm. I'm always happy to represent and try to be a repository for that culture, um, which is not always seen today in terms of its richness and the treasure trove of great artists and great music um, that came out of Baltimore. So it's something that we've represented. I've, you know, it's like, oh, you, you guys are from Baltimore. Like, how are you doing this in Baltimore? Why not DC? I'm, I'm a native of DC. Yeah. Um, but it's been something special about Baltimore and, and really understanding that nexus of tradition and history that's, been something that's been a uh, fueling me as well. It's kind of been a tributary that's fed into what I've been able to do, what I've been able to continue to preserve and uh, move forward. Thank you. Yeah, I, yeah, that's yeah. I, I I see that in the the vantage point that that I'm in in this kind of new media. People are I, I I'll use the term buying up podcasters and uh, this I guess this alternative version of journalism and, right, and storytellers right. and. I, yeah. I, at the end of the day, it's always like, I need to be here. Like I'm a native right. Baltimorean. I got to yeah, tell what's going on here. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I read that you and the, the Soulful Symphony are performing at the Preakness this year. Um, we are. So so could you share with me why it was important for you to be involved this year, especially because um, I know you've been involved in the past, but involved this year, especially with the expanded entertainment and, and cultural celebration? Well, yeah, I mean, certain partnerships and opportunities align. I said shared values are stronger and greater than shared interests. So with this partnership with Preakness, we did it two years ago with Wyclef Mm -hmm. and an expanded platform to not only like we talked about this whole cultural milieu. So you have music and you have culinary and you have art, um, which kind of just the tapestry of culture is is broad. And so to add the element of the symphony into that is something that's very natural for me. And then to combine that with our um, our partnered artists that we're featured with, with D- DJ D Nice, um, for me that's just like a it's a home run because yeah. it ties again together these two disparate cultures and these two different types of music and these two disparate styles. You got digital and you got this acoustic thing kind of meshing and merging together, and it's this whole mashup. 
um, that represents octave, you know, optically you see a symphony orchestra and you see a DJ together. We're bringing two, you know, different traditions together and using it. And we're just been able to figure out how to make it work. So I'm excited about the exploration of that relationship that we're doing and then how that kind of comes across and allows people to kind of engage with the symphony orchestra like we typically don't get to. I always say like the big band was something that you went and heard and danced to. It wasn't something that you went and bought a ticket and sat back and listened to. And we've gotten away from this whole ritual and communal experience where people can come and engage with the symphony orchestra. Um, Many people don't understand like all of Mozart's symphonies and that Haydn and Beethoven, they were writing for imperial balls. That was like very utilitarian music. And we're thinking of classical music and the symphony orchestra is something that's removed from ritual. So the idea of having a DJ where people are like right up on you dancing is just it's super electric and it's crazy exciting um, <laughs> to have that type of opportunity to to be the soundtrack to people's experience in, in an evening. Oh, yeah, I love it. <laughs> and uh, I, I've noticed that it, it is that that utilitarian thing that you mentioned that mm-hmm. having that there, making sure it's a part of that full experience is is huge and it's important because there is this shift as how we consume media these days, how we, you know, they're the way that we go out, the way that we maybe go to see live music, the way that we go to be in these uh, different festivals has, has changed tremendously due to COVID and just different restrictions. And just people may not feel as safe. But even before that, there, there was this shift that, um, you know, more people are on their phone recording the experience instead of experiencing this. That's a great, that's a great point. That's a great point. You're right. And so, I, I try to like highlight the, the, the way, even the word to say consuming music, man, it, it gets us producers. It, it draws a line between what's produced and what's consuming a product and something that's bought and sold. And the, the purpose of culture is something that we experience together, something that we're creating together. And we've gotten away from that. Capitalism and commercialism and the consumer mentality has gotten us away from understanding that when we come together, it's really, First and foremost, a human encounter where we celebrate, affirm and explore who we are and how we engage. And we identify like through music and through an event, you identify with that. You distill and say, this is who we are. It's it's a definitive moment where you align with a group of people, whether it's two or a festival of 10,000. And the music signifies, hey, this is who we are. This is what we're about. This is a human moment. So the idea of just consuming that and that walking away, understanding that you're a part of a larger culture is something I'm always also very interesting and in, in making sure that we're like that's at the forefront of 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 some of of some of the talking points and the mission that we have as as soulful symphony and me as a creative and an almost a cultural architect yes yes <laughs> and yeah i mean making sure that the, that culture kind of continues and it's it's not changed because I think once we, it, it, me and my my girlfriend joke about it all the time. I don't know if people are ready to be back outside, and you, just because of <laughs> some of the wild, <laughs> some of the wild behavior you see. And I think yeah, it, that's there's a great point. there's a shift of what's considered a norm and what's considered how we go about things. And right. I'd rather it just be like just have fun, enjoy yourself, yeah, be there yeah, in the moment. Yeah. Um, so in that, I, w- I want to ask you this: um, from your from your vantage point, what are some of the hallmarks that define like a thriving like art community, or I, I, I guess, or art community, or arts and cultural like like sector? So you know, what comes to mind when I, when, I, when you think of like the hallmarks of a place or of a, of a scene? 
Yeah, the hallmarks of a scene, like culture for me, is first identifying and understanding that at the bedrock, before you have a cultural scene or before you even get to the level of artists or storytellers who are kind of like given a, as a musician, you're trying to paint a sonic picture of what the scene is. It's understanding that first it's human engagement. So any scene to me has to have some type of how are we engaging? What are the politics of the city? What's the vibe of the city? How are people engaging with each other? Where it's through you know, relationships, work, it's, it's just the most basic level that we, we engage with each other. It's like me going to get my hair cut. It's the barbershop. It's like, that's a vibe for me. Yes. So I'm informed by that kind of ground level culture. And then from there, you begin to build around what the art scene is. Because if you're, if you're like creating an art scene, like almost raining down and not building it up in the soil, it becomes to me something that's contrived or something mm-hmm. that we're ado- adopting from like this larger, monoculture and that's what i love about baltimore and cities like that is because you're able to kind of like create something that's really specific to us a, a town like baltimore when it, it's so dependent and has so much character so i'm always trying to make sure that things like the music or the dance or this is all kind of connected in a way that it really feels tastes and smells like the city because we we kind of grayed out this idea of what localism is and mm-hmm. how we localize our, our regionalism because we've become such a monoculture and mass media has kind of like siloed us into this one way of conceiving music, one way. So if you go to L.A. now, that sounds like Baltimore. Mm-hmm. You go to Baltimore, now that sounds like the South. Before it was like you went to Baltimore because that had a vibe or Philly had a sound and New York had a sound. You had the dirty South and you had the West Coast. So I'm always making sure that we're aware that these localisms kind of stay and remain and, and make their imprint in our music and in our art. So the art scene, to answer your question, should speak to all of those human elements. Yeah, the, the, it's the people that make it. And really, with this particular series, that's why the focus has always been on arts and culture, because I think that's really what makes up like it's the lifeblood of a community, of a thriving community. That's a great point. And it's the thing that remains I always say when you go to Rome, man, you don't have any idea about the Magna Carta or the politics of, of Rome. You you go to see the ruin. You go to see the, the art and you, sco- you go to see the culture. So all of those things change. But the things that remain is always is always the culture. So we have to kind of like we have to shepherd that. Totally. Yeah. So I got two more real questions and then I got those rapid fire questions that, I, that everyone seems to like, not like everyone just like, come on, man, you can't ask me about peanut butter, man. I was like, what? Uh, so in, in, in this, this next question, um, it's, we, we try to make it all peaches and cream sometimes, but when we're creating and as, as a person such as yourself, you wear many hats there, there are times that you're like, man, I really like this part of it. And it's like, all right, I gotta, I gotta do this. I gotta. Got to got to do this admin work in terms of the yeah. whole like process of for, for your work. What what do you enjoy most and what do you enjoy least within that? And maybe maybe why? Yeah, my creative process, I think what I love most is the act of bringing people together. I say, like, if you had to distill everything I do as a composer and as someone who you know puts on performances and presents, the beautiful thing about me is that at the end of the day, I've brought a, a, a lot of people together to experience something. And so that's always for me, that's the, that's the, my payoff. And then to be able to create and the color and to, to paint a picture of what people are sensing in the universe or in their lives or in their relationships from 
the most basic to the most cosmic for me as a composer to have this universal canvas to kind of paint these stories on. That's always at the forefront of why I do it and what my creative process is. And then balancing that against not what's going on in my times, making sure that I'm, you know, a contemporary and up to date and my music speaks to this time, but also making sure that I'm like, I have a long view of, of the history of American art, history of art period. So I'm going back as far as Homer and, you know, exploring all of that. And then that informs my work. The things that I, you know, <laughs> that kind of rub me a certain way is, <laughs> you know, how I always say we homogenize art and culture, man, where like a friend of mine is, he's a jazz artist. So Kendrick just released his project and everybody's comparing his project to Kendrick's. And it was like, that would not, that would only happen in 2022. There's never <laughs> time that Duke Ellington would have been compared to Rosetta Tharp or something like that. So we have this homogenized, so everybody's, you got classical artists who are thinking, oh man, now I got to have something just as hot as this. So this whole consumerism and commercialism yeah. for me is something that I kind of fight like the plague, man, to make sure that I, I sanitize my art in the, in the sense that I don't feel like I'm in the marketplace of competition with other art forms or other artists mm -hmm. that I can be as true um, and judicial with my art form and that it speaks from a place that is not influenced by anything outside of, of that. That is, is funny. You mentioned that this, this goes into that, that last question that I have. And I held off on this one because I, I thought that you were going <laughs> to be in that kind of, kind of spot. And it's, this comes from, uh, uh oh, you set me up. You set me up. You had a carrot <laughs> on the stick. You ain't, I didn't know I was being led to it. <laughs> <laughs> um, it reminds me of this interview I listened to with, um, the rapper currency and, and, and he was talking about like, not really listening to certain things at a time when he's in album mode, when he's putting something together. So, mm -hmm. To to in, in staying up to date and, and staying like what well, what's happening now just just as a peak, could you tell me how you consume like media right now like current media new media specifically music and you know how how does how does that play a role into your process is it more so just to be aware of what's popping what's going on right now or is it more so like oh okay this is what potentially competition is doing and i know that's a weird question but you know what are your thoughts in that area yeah i mean i there was a time where i would try to like i said kind of cord myself off to what happened i understand how people feel like their art is going to be influenced if they're listening to other artists but i feel like it strengthens what i'm doing so i'm mm. i'm at the opposite i'm listening to everything i can get my ears on so it's everything from like i said what my what what's on my playlist or what my nephew might be saying hey he's like he's always keeping me hip so he's like yo check out this Brody rich i'm like oh i don't know who this is but okay i'm with it so somehow that's going to influence what i'm doing and then i don't you know, then, and then it's the whole, and it's what I'm reading, and it's what art I'm going to see, mm -hmm. and it's what I'm eating. So I try to make sure that that like my art is being informed by the full spectrum of culture, and it's not just something I'm kind of listening to and it's forming my music. Because I think that's another thing that we're in danger of not understanding that all the arts feed into each other. It's like this intersection of all of art and culture. So it's important what I'm reading is just as important as what I'm listening to, just as important as what I'm going to see and check out in terms of who's making a statement in the art world. Mm, yeah. When, um, and, and I definitely relate to that when, if it's, I've been dipped in the same environment too long, like sometimes you have mm -hmm. to take those, those little trips just to get maybe a different scene. Definitely. So, 
you know, yeah. I think the last time that I travel and then the next time that I travel, it's related to, okay, let me go and see what this art scene looks like. Let me right. go and check out these right. museums and right. taking right. a show in this different environment right. just to give yeah. me that refresh. Yeah. Because you don't want to yeah. be stale. You don't want to just You got to like... hit that reset button, man, and clean, clean, cleanse the palate, man. So Absolutely. you don't, you know, begin to regurgitate information that doesn't serve you. Yes. Yes. Like 100%. All right. Now it's going to get weird. Uh, it's now it's time for these rapid fire questions. I like to tell people it's going to get weird because these these questions are kind of random. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, first question. Um, and try to answer these as quickly as you can. Because <laughs> uh, it's that's the point of it, right? Um, yep. Did you have a nickname when you were younger? And if so, what was it? My nickname was Big Shot. And my nickname is still Big Shot. I have a, a huge part of my life people in my life that still call me Big Shot. And I was named Big Shot by my dad when I was born. I was 10 pounds, and he thought I would probably be like a football player or something. But here we are as a position. But yeah, Big Shot. <laughs> I wish I had that. I mean, I was 10 pounds when I was born, and I look like a football player currently. <laughs> it's just like, you're junior. It's like, you're always going to make it seem like I'm smaller than you. I'm, bigger, I'm yeah, the biggest exactly. person in my family. Yeah, funny. Yeah, you should have got Big Shot, not should have got junior. <laughs> I agree. Uh, uh because I, I really enjoy pop culture. I do a movie review podcast outside of this okay. one. And um, and I, I don't know if you're a movie guy, but here's a question. Uh, favorite fictional piano player? Ah, that's a great question. Because technically... <laughs> you know, ah, you're stumping me. You're stumping <laughs> me. But it's right on the tip of my tongue, man. You got me. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Fair enough. I, I was for whatever reason when I think of, and it's it's so unrefined, right? But I think okay. of someone just kicking a leg up and just doing a little dirty piano, like uh, like the five heartbeats or something. Like uh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. There you go. I was I was in my head too much for the question, but I hear what you're saying. Um, are you a morning person or a night person? Uh, definitely a night person. But I've had to be a I've I've, I've like. Room myself to be a morning person, specifically when I'm composing, because it just need more time, and more mm -hmm. hours in the day. But naturally, circadian wise, I'm a I'm a night owl. I've 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 done the shift. I get up super early now, and wow. I, I try to take advantage of those those best hours. It's almost like yeah, I'm I know. a post yeah, office imagine. or something. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's true. Um, last two I got for you. Um, well, actually, two a.m. is just as nice as six a.m. I always tell people that. <laughs> Five, I'm up at two sometimes. Two a.m. is special too. It's not just that five a.m., six a.m., seven a.m. That two a.m., three a.m. is real special, bro. You're, you're really selling those early hours, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> or those late hours, depending on which exactly, position. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So here's the last one, because um, I'm I'm very interested in like what super talented people do, and mm -hmm. uh, so do you have an odd habit or superstition when it comes to your work? Yeah, I have to compose with a certain pencil mm. and a certain manuscript. And I'm nervous because they're starting because we're in such a, it's this death of print and death of paper that my manuscript books are no longer. So I hoard them. Every time I go to New York or LA, I kind of like hoard them, but I have, I have a gobs of a certain manuscript, paper, notebooks, and a certain pencil that I compose with. And mm -hmm. if I don't have it, I'm, it's, it's a problem, kind of, sort of. We we have our things like if I'm sitting yeah, here bro. coming up with questions or something and doing research, 
I have to do it first thing in the beginning of the week. It's like I got to start this week fresh. Let me review this person's background. Yeah. Two yeah, hours checking out old right. interviews. Right. And if I haven't done that, the week is not going to go well. I get it. I get it. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> so. So that's really all of the questions that I had for you today. But um, I want to um, encourage you and invite you to um, ch- ch- tell the folks where you're where to find you and um, pretty much plug anything you want to plug in these last few minutes we have here. Yeah, we're um, all over the area soon, man. We're going to be at Preakness, of course, next Friday. And what's really special and significant is that we're going to be doing quite a bit of programming, presenting, not just on stage, but presenting other art forms and other artists at uh, Meriwether Post Pavilion this summer with a huge festival next summer and more shows next year. And then I'm going to be doing quite a bit of um, performances next year um, with Soulful Symphony and then some smaller and different iterations of what people are used to seeing me as. Um, So I'm excited about that. And um, any social media or anything for folks to kind of stay up to date? I'm at Darren Atwood on IG, Soulful Symphony at IG. We're doing the whole brand relaunch and rebrand. So um, just keep your ears and eyes open for um, this whole rebrand of, of our social media and website presence. Sounds good. Love to hear it. Yep. Looking forward to uh, May 20th, right? Absolutely, man. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and your, your, your blasting and growing burgeoning <laughs> audience, brother. Thank you so much. Congratulations on it. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, So I'm going to wrap up there. So for uh, Dern Atwater, I am Rob Lee saying that there is art, music, live music in and around Baltimore. You just got to look for it. (laughs) 